Well, good morning, and thank you again for joining us today at River Oaks Online, those of you worshiping at home and those here in our sanctuary. It is so great to have you with us. Want to let you know we are going to celebrate communion today, the Lord's Supper. So for those of you worshiping at home, you might want to have a piece of bread handy or uh, juice or a near substitute. Those of you here got one of our little packaged uh, cups on your way in. If not, you can feel free to grab one. Uh, and we'll celebrate in just about 20 minutes. Want to let you know that on Christmas Eve, December 24th, we're going to have three services here, one at 3, one at 4.30, one at 7.30. The service will be live streamed so that those of you who want to worship at home on Christmas Eve can do that. And we're going to have a, a special uh, time when you can stop by the church the week of December 14th and pick up communion candles for Christmas Eve. So uh, we're excited about that. And let me just say this, be thinking about a friend, family member, co-worker that you can invite to join you, to, to join you on Christmas Eve by extending an invitation to watch our service online or to join us here at one of our three times. We're having three times because we've got plenty of space to spread out and we don't want there to be overcrowding on Christmas Eve. Um, before getting in the message, I just want to take a moment this morning to say thank you. Thank you because you as a church have been so faithful in continuing to support us throughout the year with your giving, with your encouragement. Um, I recognize we've had to make a number of changes in trying to decide what's best for our church, what the Lord would have us do in terms of worshiping in person and wearing masks. And we've recently had to change that to ask you to wear masks throughout both our services Thank you for understanding. Um, I can't promise you that we have always made the right decisions, but I can promise you that we have tried, prayerfully seeking wise counsel. So thank you for sticking with us, supporting us with your prayers, your giving, uh, your presence, your encouragement in this unusual year. Would you join me now as we pray again before we get into God's word? Father, we approach your holy scripture this day with the prayer prayed by the psalmist in Psalm 119. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. May your Holy Spirit give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we look to your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. We are very near the end of our one story series. For those who've been with us all year, we began at the book of Genesis, we're going to the book of Revelation, and we're looking at the unified theme of God's plan of redemption for his people found from beginning to end in the scripture. Today, we're at the little New Testament book of 2 Peter, almost at the end of the Bible. Uh, the second letter written by the apostle Peter to Christians, many of whom were suffering for their faith. And in 2 Peter, there's a particular emphasis on warning the early Christian church and warning us about the danger of false teachings, errant teachings, false prophets, just as Jesus warned of false prophets who would come in sheep's clothing. So Peter's warning of false teachers coming into the church, teaching wrong doctrines. And while that's an emphasis in the book of 2 Peter, Another emphasis is on our own spiritual growth. And I want to look at that this morning. In 2 Peter chapter 1, 
As Peter's encouraging believers in their spiritual growth, he begins by reminding us, those of us who have embraced Jesus as our Savior and Lord, what God has already done for us. And he notes first that the faith of every true believer is of equal standing with that of the apostles. Now that's a remarkable thing, but here's what he writes. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What he's saying, I think, is that every believer, no longer how, no matter how long you've been a believer, has a faith that's of equal standing with the Apostle Peter, with the Apostle Paul. Doesn't mean our faith is as strong or certainly not as mature as theirs. You may feel like uh, you're weak in faith and may indeed be weak in faith by comparison. But the point is this, while our faith may feel weak, the gift of faith that God gives to us to embrace his salvation is based on the righteousness of Jesus. Note again the words of Peter, to those who've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our standing with God is secure because it rests on something that's eternal, perfect, flawless. That's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so he begins with this word of encouragement to those believers who may feel at times weak in faith, like I suspect we all do. You've obtained a faith of equal standing with us, even with the apostles, not by your own righteousness, but by the righteousness of our God and Savior. Secondly, our experience of God's grace and peace should grow and can grow throughout life. Peter gives a blessing, a benediction to the church when he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, Peter's giving the benediction, but remember these are God's words being spoken through Peter. God's will is that for every believer, our experience of his grace and his peace in our lives should grow. It can be multiplied to us. And notice the little phrase, in the knowledge of God. These words, in the knowledge of, are found three times in verses 2 through 8. Peter's emphasis here is not simply gaining knowledge about God, facts about God, as good as that may be, but a personal knowledge of God, knowing Him, that leads us to loving Him. We often say in our church, the goal of our growth is to know the Lord better and to love him more. And I think that's what Peter has in mind here. So he begins with this encouragement, and then in the next verses, he stresses three great truths that really lay a foundation for our spiritual growth, our progress in faith as followers of Jesus. Number one, he notes that God has given us everything we need for a fruitful life. Not that he's going to, he has given us everything we need for a fruitful life. In verse 3 he writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
What a remarkable statement. Think about that. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. Here we have those words again. The knowledge of Him. The knowledge of the Lord who called us to His own glory and excellence. And note again, this is not something we might hope God provides for us, but something that's been done. God has granted to us in Christ everything we need for a godly life. Secondly, he's provided for us to be partakers of the divine nature. After saying he's called us to his glory and excellence, Peter continues, by which, that is, by his glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Now, these precious and very great promises are found one place in the Scripture, in the Bible, which tells us if we're going to live out what he's talking about in this passage, being partakers of the divine nature, we must expose our minds, our hearts, our souls to the great and precious promises of Scripture, learning, receiving, living out his word in our lives. Now, as we embrace his promises in Scripture, like the ones we're reading about right now. What does it mean to be partakers of the divine nature? What does it mean? Well, I think we need to first consider what it does not mean. We do not become divine. Peter's not saying that somehow the more you learn, you just kind of merge into God and you become God. It's not what he's saying. God will forever be our great, distinct creator, and we will forever be his adopted ones, his created one, his created ones, the children he chose to, to give birth to and bring to himself. We don't become divine, but we partake of his presence by his very own Holy Spirit he gives to us. And when we do that, Peter's saying, we can actually live above the corruption of this world. We're in a world that Peter has said has been corrupted by lust, by sinful desire. But as we partake of the divine nature, we live in communion with God by the Holy Spirit. We escape that. We live above that. We're in the world, as Jesus said, but we're not of the world. Being partakers of the divine nature further means that we are eternally united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6, 17, the Apostle Paul says, He who is joined to the Lord is, is one spirit with the Lord. That is, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. As Jesus told his followers before he left, uh, that he and the Father would be with us, would be in us, speaking of the Holy Spirit and then thirdly, partaking of the divine nature further means that we are being conformed to his likeness. This is a growth process throughout life, but the Apostle Paul wrote elsewhere that God has predestined believers to be conformed, that is shaped like the likeness of his son. 
You and I should be more like Jesus at the end of 2020 than we were at the beginning of 2020. Because God's continuing that work in us. It's a work of, of progress in him. So Peter's majored so far on what God's done for us, given us everything that pertains to life and godliness, given us exceedingly great promises by which we're partakers of the divine nature. So what do we do? He now speaks of our responsibility in this third point when he tells us we are called to do something. We're called to make every effort to grow toward fruitfulness. Our salvation is entirely God's work. Our spiritual growth is a joint effort. We are workers together with God in our spiritual growth. And so Peter says, for this reason, because of what God's done for you already, make every effort, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, our spiritual growth should be ever increasing throughout life. If they're yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation is entirely God's work. Our spiritual growth is a joint effort. God's grace enables our effort. And so it calls us to work on our spiritual growth. And he, and he lists, this, lists these qualities. And he says, if you have these qualities and they're growing, they're increasing in you, you'll never be unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus. Well, let's look at these qualities for a minute. It might help to, to view them uh, like this on your screen. He says, first of all, to make every effort to add to your faith virtue. Virtue is moral goodness. It's the same word used here for virtue has been translated as excellence in verse 3 when he talks about the excellence of Jesus. So what Peter's talking about when he says, add to your faith virtue is the moral goodness that you see in the life of Christ himself. Add to your virtue, he says, knowledge. We're always growing in our knowledge of the Lord. Add to your knowledge, self-control. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians writes about nine fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Self-control means we're, we're not controlled by the passions of the flesh, but we're under the control of the Holy Spirit. It's a quality that a Christian grows in throughout life as we partake more fully of the Holy Spirit's presence and power within us. The discipline, the quality, the fruit of self-control, it can grow in your life. It can grow in our lives. Add your self-control, Peter says, steadfastness. Steadfastness is spoken of frequently in the letters of the New Testament. If you're with us when we looked at the book of James a few weeks ago, uh, you may recall 
an emphasis on this there. The, the apostle James wrote in James chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then he says, let steadfastness have its full effect so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, you have to have the quality of steadfastness to be mature and complete in your faith. And steadfastness is developed as you go through trials, the testing of your faith. The very presence of the quality of steadfastness the same word is sometimes translated perseverance in a Christian's life tells you that they have been through some trials, that their faith has been tested. Maybe you know Christians like this. I've known a number over my life and, and I've observed them as they've gone through terrible, terrible trials, hard things. Yet in their, in their trial, in their suffering, in their adversity, they didn't turn away from the Lord. They just drew near to him. They drew on his strength. They drew on the power of the spirit. And they came through the trial. And, and you see on their countenance something of the beautiful peace of God and presence of God. There's a quality. There's a maturity. There's a rest to their faith. There's a steadfastness. It's come through persevering. The Greek word translated steadfastness, also perseverance, is a word that means abiding under. Even under trial, we abide faithful to God. We keep our eyes on God. We don't turn away from God in trials. We draw close to God. We draw our strength to Him. And the quality of steadfastness grows. Add to your steadfastness, Peter says, godliness. Godliness simply means a reverence for God in all of life. High regard, respect for his greatness, his holiness. Add to godliness brotherly affection. Brotherly affection comes from the Greek word Philadelphia. Easy word to remember. Has to do with brotherly love. This is Christian affection for one another. The way believers are to love and care for one another. And add to this brotherly affection, Peter writes, Agape. This comes from the Greek, Greek word agape, love. This is God's kind of love. This is John 3:16 love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is the unconditional quality of God's love. Jesus used this word when he said, love your enemies. And the apostle Paul writing of this love said, this agape is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And now Peter says, if these qualities are in you and they are increasing, they ensure you're never going to be without fruit in your life. You're going to be a believer whose life is filled with fruit. So make every effort. Draw on the power of the Holy Spirit that God has provided for you. Draw on the exceedingly great and precious promises of his word by which you partake of the divine nature because he has given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. Make every effort to let these qualities be increasing in your life. And that means your life of faith will be used by God to, to reach other people, to help them grow, 
to help meet their needs. It means your growth in faith will help to further God's kingdom and to give glory to Jesus Christ. May that be so for every one of us at River Oaks Community Church. So as we reflect on this passage in 2 Peter, I think it leads us to ask ourselves uh, two questions. First, is my faith genuine? There are a lot of people who, who have a mere nominal faith in God but have never truly embraced his salvation by humbling themselves, repenting of sin, and receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. If you've done that, if you can truly say, yes, Jesus is my Lord, I believe indeed your faith is genuine. But secondly, is my faith growing? I'm sure some of us, perhaps many of us, would say that 2020 has been a year for us like no other year that we have lived. And for many, I know it feels like faith is weaker now at the end of the year than it was at the beginning of the year because it has been a year with uh, lots of disappointment, lots of discouragement. Um, I've noted in people, and I'm not, I'm not talking about in our church primarily, but just in things I see, things I read, um, more anger, more frustration, more discouragement, um, division, homes, marriages, and yes, in churches too. But the year's not over. 25 <coughs> days remain in this year. And I want to encourage you to make 2020 a year in which we not only go through it, but grow through it. To make it a year in which steadfastness and perseverance so develop in us that we can reflect on these final weeks of 2020 and say, my faith really took hold of God's promises. I humbled myself before God. There was a renewing work of the Holy Spirit in my life on those last three weeks of December 2020. I'd like to take just a, a moment now, a couple minutes, to humble ourselves before God before we take communion this morning and to allow him to expose anything for which we need to repent. Because renewal in our faith often begins with repentance. Some may need to repent of an attitude of, of anger. Um, anger at other people, anger at people with different views, different policies, different understandings. Um, anger in your marriage, anger in your home, anger in your church. I'd like to take a moment and ask God, the Holy Spirit, to prepare us that this communion would be something special today. Time of renewal, rekindling in our faith, revitalization. So would you join me now as we wait on God and invite the Holy Spirit to prepare us to take communion today? Father, we come now in the name of the one who gave his life to redeem us by his blood. The one who left the glory of heaven to be born among us, to live among us, and to be sacrificed for us. 
In the name of Jesus, we pray now that the Holy Spirit would be at work in us. Father, would you bring to mind any sins for which we need to repent? Would you forgive us for our anger at others, our anger at those in our own households, perhaps even, Lord, our anger at you? Forgive us for being so quick to judge this year. Forgive us for hatred. Forgive us for becoming so discouraged when all the time you have already provided all that we need for life and godliness that we might be partakers of the divine nature. Forgive us for not trusting, for not believing. Forgive us, Lord, for dividing over minor issues and not showing brotherly affection to other believers and not demonstrating your agape love. Father, forgive us. Wash us with the water of your word. Now take a moment of silence for you to confess sin and let the Lord search your own heart. And now, Father, we remember the beautiful promise in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse us that we might be more fully filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to walk with You and to bear much fruit for Your glory. We ask in the great name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, so if you're viewing at home, this would be a good time to grab a piece of bread, some juice, or maybe a near substitute. I want to remind you of what Peter said in Second Peter chapter 1, that we've obtained a faith of equal standing, by the righteousness of our God and Savior. The Apostle Paul wrote about the righteousness of our God when he says of Christ that he, God, made him to be sin for us who knew no sin so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. Meaning that on the cross a great transferal took place. Jesus took our sin upon himself that we might be credited with his unrighteousness. And because of the gift of forgiveness, because of the gift, the very gift of the righteousness of God in Christ, we're able to stand before him and call him our Father who art in heaven. Jesus told us always to reflect on what he'd done in the giving of his body and blood on the cross so that we might obtain the gift of his righteousness, his right standing with God, by what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. As we prepare to partake, 
you'll note on your screen the, the words of the Apostle Paul who wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. One reason I wanted to take that moment of self-examination a couple minutes ago was because of this verse that tells us to examine ourselves before we take communion. I'd like to pray once again, and then we'll, we'll partake together in just a moment. Father, as we prepare to take this holy thing we call communion, the Lord's Supper. So work in us that we take it rightly and that we receive all the benefits that you intend as we reflect upon the giving of Jesus' body, the giving of his blood, the bringing us into this new covenant. Holy Spirit, Help us partake rightly now in the name of Jesus.